This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. With thanks to Monique Sabir for the last three hours of Out on the Patio. Out on the Patio. Patio will be out <laughs> between 4 and 7pm next Wednesday. This is Bite Into It, a thoroughly professional hour of tech, video games and general cyber shenanigans. I'm Simon. This is Dan. Hi. Uh, <laughs> How's it going, Simon? I'm very well. I'm very well. Good to hear. Good um, to we've got a good show. We've got a great show. Uh, this week... How good are retro video games? I'm a huge fan of retro video games. I'm going to be brutally honest. I think retro video games, I last played probably when they weren't retro, and that's probably the last time I played video games. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I was going to say, I'm old enough that retro video games are just video games. Just my childhood. Yeah. yeah. But uh, there's a festival on, and Michelle Mannering is coming on to tell us a little about it. Plus, uh, the kids are not all right according to Andrew Joyce, the co-founder of Founds, a job-finding app presumably aimed at making the kids all right. Uh, We can only hope. Finding out a little bit more about that next up. But first, some news. Indeed. Uh, And it's pretty brutal news. Uh, The Human Rights Commission has today released research showing that sexual harassment at work is on the rise. Uh, Young Australians are far more likely to be targeted Uh, and the research breaks down the prevalence by industry and information, media and telecommunications tops the list. That is um, very... It's disappointing, but I don't think... I'm not hugely surprised, unfortunately. Um, I, I think as much as we want tech to be a welcoming place for people of all genders regardless of how they identify i think it's very much still a a boys club i guess but i wasn't shocked by its place on the list i was shocked by the stat yeah uh and so the article that i was reading said 81 percent of workers in the industry have been sexually harassed now i had to go i was like no (laughs) No. that's wrong is that 81 percent of Female employees or eighty-one percent of all employees? Employees, employees surveyed, I believe. Okay, that which, I mean, that's that's a hideous number. That is a hideous number. And and the second off the oh, the second on the list is forty-nine percent. Yeah, there's a gap of thirty-one, thirty-two percent between yeah. uh, arts and recreation services, which is uh, second on the list, and information, media, and telecommunications. Yeah, media, information, media, and te- telecommunications is definitely upping the average. I did. I went to the report itself just mm-hmm. because I was like, no, no, that can't be right. Yep. and and it's that's what they're saying. It's it's disappointing. Um, we've 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 got a lot more work to do in this space, and I think maybe uh, the people in charge of uh, these industries need to kind of sit down and have a hard look at themselves. You know, it's we've we've seen so much at you know the big end of town. You kind of your your Ubers and the various huge huge companies in Silicon Valley getting in all kinds of strife for their sexual harassment culture. Um, Maybe we need to start looking at ourselves a little bit more. Yeah, and so I think that it's probably worth considering what your behaviour is. Mm. Um, it's interesting to see the so the report. If you're interested, is titled "Everyone's Business," and it 
outlines the three most common forms of sexual harassment at work, which are offensive, sexually suggestive comments or jokes, inappropriate physical contact and unwelcome touching, hugging, uh, cornering or kissing. Mm. And, uh, I mean, those are all terrible things and they should not happen. I think we need to... It sounds like we need some education that... It's not okay. Like people who who are doing it don't think it's a problem. It's not like they are purposely being harassing, but it sounds like someone, yeah, education I think is the key here. Yeah, and I think that education is incumbent on everyone. Absolutely. You'd say, you know, it's not just, you know, it's not a government education campaign. It's saying, hey, that's not all that great or thinking about your own behaviour. Yeah, like would I be okay with this happening to me? No, then bloody well stop it. Anyway, um, a bit more news, not not as um, horrible news, uh, coming out of a small island or a, a group of islands called the Marshall Islands. Now, I didn't do enough research to work out where the Marshall Islands are. Oh, no, let me Google. Yeah, you Google that. I can say that the Marshall Islands is a U- US... Uh, it's not a dependency. They are, they are dependent largely on the United States, but they don't have formal ties other than being, and this is where we get into the crux of the story, uh, using the US dollar as their primary currency. Except they have decided that they want to uh, create their own currency, and they want it to be a cryptocurrency. Now, um, that's a, it's an interesting development because you know in the last you know year, two years, we've seen obviously a rise in cryptocurrency as investment rather than currency, uh, I suppose, uh, substitute. And with that in mind, the International Monetary Fund has actually said, you know what, guys, we're not cool with you uh, creating a cryptocurrency as your uh, legal tender. Um, They want to call it the Sovereign or the SOV, which sounds like a ridiculous name. Um, The president of the Marshall Islands, Hilda C. Heiner, said, uh, it's another step of manifesting our national liberty. Now, I'm all for sovereignty and I'm all for national liberty. Um, I don't I I see there could be issues with um, there being a cryptocurrency as the primary form of currency in this particular country. Uh, Having said that, they have no plans to abandon the dollar. Anyway, abandon the US dollar. So they're just going to... I don't know. What do you you think about this? Well, I've just just found them. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to make a massive difference. You don't reckon? Give me some stats on on the Marshall Islands then, Simon. There, I would say that they're pretty much like globally, as mm-hmm. far as you could like sort of work it out. They are in the middle of nowhere. nowhere. So, <laughs> um, as far as I can tell, they're about halfway between Papua New Guinea and Hawaii. Okay, so we're talking like Southeast Pacific, Mid Pacific, Equatorial Pacific, Equatorial Pacific. Okay. Um, do we have any stats on what the Marshall Islands economy primarily is? I'm going to. Hey, I was, I'm gonna guess I was on where, tourism. or I wasn't on how. Oh, okay, all right, fair I enough. I don't know. I well, can, so, well, I'll no, find out. I'll find out. Well, yeah. what are the people going to be using their cryptocurrencies for? Like, I, I, I want to know, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all I've managed to find out so far is that there are a sprawling chain of volcanic islands and coral atolls in the Central Pacific Ocean. Okay, the economy of the Marshall Islands. Here's, here's some Wikipedia for you. Um, 30, uh, the government is the, is the largest employer of the Marshall <laughs> Islands and employs 30% of the people on the islands. Um, the GDP is derived mainly from payments made by the United States under the terms of the amended Compact of Free Association and direct USAID accounted for 60% of the Marshall Islands' $90 million budget. So um, 
why they would want to move away from the US dollar when they're being paid by the US, who knows? But I, I, I can see where they're coming from in that they want a bit of, you know, sovereignty and I suppose uh, autonomy from the US, whether the cryptocurrency and whether the IMF, they haven't said you can't do it. They're just very strongly urging them not to. Uh, but I guess it'll be an interesting case study to see if uh, countries with larger economies are willing to do that kind of thing. Closer to home. Mm. Uh, the proposed bill, uh, it's been called an anti-encryption bill. Okay. Uh, I think the official term, let me just find it, Ooh. is the telecommunications and, and other. other amendments uh, 2018. Mm. So Assistance yeah. and access bill. Uh, right. But... Basically, this is this is one that has been caught, be causing a kerfuffle because the government wants to be able to read or wants, under certain circumstances, encrypted messages. Right, okay. So this is something we should probably be ringing alarm bells across the country? Uh, well, it's certainly rung alarm ge- bells with a few of our favourite tech giants. Mm-hmm. Amazon, Facebook, Google, Oath and Twitter members. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure officially with the companies, but um, they've... They've raised concerns um, in a submission. Uh, they've got a group uh, called the Digital Industry Group Inc. Okay, uh, with a handy acronym of Digi. Digi, handy. Um, they've got a submission. They're saying Digi urges the government to review the bill and reflect in its practices ones that are consistent with the established norms of privacy, free expression, and the rule of law. Mm. Um, so yes, that's. It, it's a worrying bill. We did, we did touch on it very briefly last week. Um, uh, Electronic f- uh, Frontiers Australia were uh, getting a bit uh, up in arms about it, as, as, as they should. Um, and it's good to see that the high-profile corporates are getting on board with it as well because it is, it's, it's, a, it's a worrying trend and we've been seeing it over a number of years and then there'll be a massive, you know, leak of some description in WikiLeaks where everyone realises, oh, all my privacy and all my data has been breached and then everyone gets up in arms about it and then we start sliding back into complacency again. Um, oh, come on. If we can't uh, trust the government with our data, who can we trust? Dan? Good point. I, 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 you, you've, you've, put it, you've put it so well, Simon. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And right now with found co-founder Andrew Joyce. Andrew Joyce, as you may have heard earlier, says the kids of Australia are not all right. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, guys. How are you going? Very well. Why are the kids not all right? Yeah, look, guys, there's, there's actually never been a worse time um, outside of a recession to be a young person looking for work. So at the moment, um, a lot of people don't know this, and it's certainly not something you hear on you know AM talkback radio or a lot of the newspapers, but roughly one in three young people are either looking for work or looking for more work at the moment. And... Um, it's tough, and we know it's really tough out there at the moment. It, it, it is. And so uh, what, what is it that you've put together that uh, is hoping to combat this issue? Yeah, so we launched, we launched Found about two and a half years ago now, and basically off the back of uh, my co-founder and I had a, a different business before this one, um, and we were constantly trying to hire young people to come and work for us in various different roles. So lots of entry-level jobs, uh, you know, talking to customers, answering phones, packing boxes, all that kind of stuff. And it was... It was actually really hard as an employer to, to find people. And so 
we tried all the usual channels. We tried Gumtree, we tried Seek. Um, Seek was really expensive, so we didn't do that too often. Um, and we, we knew there were people out there looking for work, and we couldn't get hold of them a lot of the time. So we launched Found, um, which is an app for young people looking for work uh, about two and a half years ago now, and we've got just over half a million people around Australia signed up since then. So um, it's our, you know, we're trying to basically make it easy for, easy for people to find work on your phone kind of as it suits. So you say that employers are looking for young people to give them jobs and you have been in that situation. Young people are looking for jobs. So what's the barriers there? Yeah, so look, a lot of, a lot of employers out there now, and this goes all the way to the top, so Coles, Woolworths, um, you know, we've spoken to a lot of the big fast food chains that have the same problem. They've all got application processes that you can't do on your mobile phone. And so we know that every young person out there has, has a mobile phone. That's what the data says. Um, roughly half half people out there now have either a laptop or a desktop and so there's a lot of people who are basically using their phone for, for everyday for everything, for everyday life. And so for those people in particular it's super hard to you just can't apply to jobs at these big companies without having access to to a laptop or a desktop. So that's the um it's and it's crazy. It's you know basically saying, hey sorry, you can't get a job because you haven't got an old piece of technology, which is kind of where we're at. So it's, it sounds like um, the, you've had a reasonable uptake of young people looking for work. Um, what kind of, uh, I suppose, feedback have you been getting from employers? Are, are they kind of getting on board and uh, embracing this new technology in order to find the employees that they need? Yeah, for sure. And look, we're seeing, we started out very much working with small businesses, so pubs, restaurants, um, bars, all that kind of stuff. Um, but we've been going, you know, we're going up and up through the employer ranks now. So we've got companies up to and including parts of the Australian government on the platform now. So hiring, basically hiring young people through us. And it's been it's been really positive. So a lot of these companies are starting to realise more and more that they can't just do the same thing that they were doing 5, 10, 15 years ago. Um, in some cases, 25 years ago, they've still got the same kind of process. So the companies in many cases are... Yeah, they, they realise the need to change and, um, and you know, we're, we're very happy to help them out when they get to that point. You've got no CVs or cover letters in the app. What data are you giving employers to find in their employees with to work out whether these people are going to be the people they need? Yeah, so when, when you sign up to the app, so obviously download it off the iOS or Android app stores, um, just search found on there, and then basically through signing up to the app, um, entering all the kind of all the all the data that employers really need off resumes. So where have you worked in the past? What have you trained in? What's your educational level? What certifications, interests, references? Um, cover letters. We've talked to a lot of employers. Nobody reads cover letters, um, particularly for the types of jobs that we're looking to help try and fill. Um, it's one of those things where candidates stress over them for a really long period of time, and then then they go nowhere in many cases. And so we can help employers because. We talk to people all the time and we say, what are, you, what are you looking for? And in many cases, for example, a restaurant, they're saying, well, I want someone who, who lives fairly close by, who's got an RSA, who's available on Saturday night, um, who's going to turn up to work. That's the main thing they're looking for. They're not, you know, they're not looking for whether you are the, the full back or the full forward in your, in your year four football team. And what information are you giving job seekers? Yeah, so we... We have job ads on the platform. Um, there's two things that you can do as a job seeker. You can come in and look at the job ads that are near you, so a little bit like a, a kind of a Tinder for jobs. Um, what's near me? What are the opportunities? Um, candidates can filter down through that as well and say, hey, show me stuff in hospitality that's part-time. 
Um, they can also go in and look by companies. So you can go in there and see what jobs have got with employers like Defence Force or Flight Centre or, or Ramstad and so on and so forth. So there's two ways. And then when someone finds a job they like, it's, it's basically hit the tick button and you've applied. You're dealing with a lot of industries where there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, publicity in recent times about wage theft and some dodgy employment practices. Is there anything within the platform that protects the employees? No, look, we we don't go down into that. Um, one thing that we do do, we um, you know, certainly we, we review job ads. If there's things in there that look like they're not following fair work practices, we'll, we'll basically ask the employer to, to confirm that it is compliant with all the laws. Um, if they don't do that, we'll take it down. But obviously, we don't have the you know, we don't have the capacity to go through and audit every every workplace that we work with, unfortunately. But you do you, you do make it a requirement that that the ads are you know are compliant are compliant with fair work laws and that sort of thing. Because yeah, that's the sort of thing you can do on a tech platform, which you know I guess places like Gumtree and notices in Windows don't. Yes, absolutely. So you've got you've got this app. And you've been doing it for uh, a couple of years now. Is it? Yep. What, what's the next step? Yeah, look, we've, we're constantly trying to build, just you know, continue to improve technology, continue to improve the you know, more jobs, more job seekers, um, makes it better for everybody. And so we're um, one is to just keep building that, you know, keep building the volume so there's, as I said, more jobs, more job seekers, um, but also on the technology side. So we'd love to start to. Um, work on things like video interviewing, um, being able to chat to employers before you necessarily go in and see them, um, and just keep making it. Again, our, our whole goal is to make it faster and easier and just work better on mobile um, for as many people as we can. It's interesting the working better on mobile thing because you're dealing with something which to me, I mean, I'm old, so, I mean, <laughs> ignore me if this is completely wrong, but to me it just sounds like something which is just be really fiddly on mobile and a lot of sort of annoying data to enter how do you how how what was the process of making sort of the job seeker data easier to enter yeah so look a lot of our stuff is is picked from lists so you come in there and say you know you're not you're not having to type out i did year 12 at north sydney high school um i finished in 1998 um and my school was such and such um all that stuff is picked from lists so pick your school pick which year you finished um, you know, that's that's your high school ended, for example. Similarly with any other, all of the major kind of certifications are listed, so things like RSA, um, driver's licence. Also, because it's not this, we're not in we're not in Word here. We're not having to type this up from scratch. We don't start with a, a kind of a blinking cursor on a full white page. Um, so it's very much the platform is very much tailored to make this as as easy and se- as seamless as possible. And I suppose the other thing as well is our one of our big mantras inside the company is never ask someone the same question more than once. And so at the moment, if you're out there applying to, say you want to apply to, to Coles and to Woolworths, you go to Coles, you've got to enter in every piece of information about yourself. You then go to Woolworths, you've got to re-enter every piece of information about yourself. So with us, you do it once and we'll use it again across all the employers. Andrew, it's... um. Interesting to think, like at the moment, obviously they're like with you know you're gearing it towards young people who perhaps are looking for entry level jobs uh, that you know don't necessarily need a full kind of work history. As your users get older and kind of climb up or get you know progress through their careers, do you envisage uh, needing to adapt what your platform does in order to kind of accommodate that and keep them 
using your app to find, you know, their fourth and fifth jobs, that kind of thing? Yeah, look, I think talking to employers, um, it doesn't really necessarily matter what level they're, what level employers are, are recruiting for. They're all looking at similar kind of data. So um, obviously we've got the ability in there to add in your work history where you've worked in the past. Um, whether you're entering that you worked at McDonald's or you worked at Deloitte, for example, to us, to, to, the, to us, to the platform of the system, doesn't matter. Mm. Um, it all goes in the same fields. It's all, it's all screenable. It's all searchable by employers, for example. And so, it's the kind of thing that we, as we, our, our goal is to absolutely start working with young people and then help them through the rest of their career as well. Mm. Um, but I think it's something that, um, you know, as as we go, we'll kind of keep listening to both sides of the marketplace and just adapt it as as required. But I think that you know, our hope is the kind of the, the core of of what we're doing now can be, will, will fit across the whole workforce. Okay, yeah, sure. So, and, and as you were saying earlier, you know, no cover letters, you just want the basic facts. Yep. Um, people perhaps, <clears throat> excuse me, looking for uh, a, a kind of cultural fit with an employee. How, 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 how are you able to provide that sort of intangible quality and, and bring that across when, when uh, an employer is looking for a particular employee? Yeah, look, there's a couple of ways we're, we're looking at doing this, and this is this is very much kind of the next step of this, is how do we keep making, I said, you know, make better matches faster. Um, it's all about, there's a couple of ways people do that. One is to, to start to think about how do we use video, and so can someone make, say, a 20-second video of, of just talking to the camera, so holding out their phone like you would Snapchat or Instagram, talk about why they think they'd be a great fit with that company or why they're interested in that job. Um, the second way is there's a lot of really interesting technology out there now that's starting to do effectively um, kind of fit screening effectively. So they work very closely with organisations um, to say, hey, let's let's assess your top, all of your top people. We'll get, we'll get them to take a quiz and then we'll start to screen people who are applying into jobs as well. And all the people who, who kind of start to match up with the high performance that are already in the organisation, they're the ones who go to the, effectively go to the top of the pile. So I think we'll start to look to, as I said, video through doing it ourselves and then starting to partner with some of these other organisations that are doing that are doing this stuff already. Have you had any conversations internally about um, diversity? Because, you know, one of the arguments that's been against uh, automated HR systems has been that the, the data that you collect from inti- inside a company then sort of restricts the likelihood of increasing the diversity of that company if you're continuing to employ the same sorts of people. Yeah, look, we're, we're actually working with a couple of very much um, kind of pro-diversity businesses. So there's, there's inside the found, for example, we obviously we control what ads people see in what order and, and we can start to say, hey, this, this candidate here is exactly the kind of candidate this employer is looking for and so push jobs to them, to them first. And so particularly some of those jobs, um, we do a lot with employers who are looking to increase women in the junior ranks where they're, they're currently in... Um, in one case that we're working with at the moment, the women in the kind of front line of this workforce are five to eight percent, um, and they're not getting applications through traditional channels. And so we can help them specifically target um, cohorts of women to to you know look at those jobs and apply into those roles. And it's been it's been really successful so far. So we're starting to see them be able to move the needle on those on those applications um, for all those roles. That's that's really positive. Do you provide uh, because I know that while the employees probably are more inclined towards mobile use, the employers may not be. Do you provide a desktop backend for the employers? 
Yes, I can tell you definitively, employers are not wanting to use a mobile. <laughs> um, and the, put it say, the larger the employer, the less likely they want to use a mobile as well, which is, which is fair enough. If, you're, if your job's a, if you're working as a recruiter and your job is to basically recruit people, um, the last thing you want to do is be on your phone all day. So, um, yeah, we've absolutely got a, a desktop platform and we're starting to work with the bigger employers to integrate that into their core systems as well because um, at the end of the day, you've got, to, you've got to work the way the employers want to work, otherwise they just won't use it. Well, thank you very much for coming on to Bite Into It. We will watch your company with the utmost interest. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That was Andrew Joyce, the co-founder of Found, a job mobile job-seeking platform. You're on Bite Into It with Simon Dan and right now being joined by Michelle Mannering, a journalist, professional gamer and quote-unquote hackathon queen. How are you, Michelle? Good, thanks. How are you guys? Very well. Now, I believe that there is a retro video game festival running. What can you tell us about that? That's correct. So there's a retro game activation happening at QB Melbourne. It's on there every day from 11am to 7pm from now until the 23rd of September. You can head on down there and play a bunch of really fun retro games as well as some new indie games that have been developed by um, people here in Melbourne, which is really exciting. So retro games seem to be becoming popular with other people other than me and I'm just kind of <laughs> I'm wondering what's going on there. What, what, what do you think is going on? Oh, I think, you know, it's a great way to play on nostalgia. You've seen the movie Wreck-It Ralph, right? And he says, oh, retro, I think that means old but cool. And I think that's the way everyone's kind of seeing it these days is these, these old things, but they're, they're really fun and really cool to play. And um, I've been talking to a lot of people about retro gaming, and they're really easy to play as well. Like there's one objective or one goal for the game to play, so people are really getting involved in it and you know, playing on that now that nostalgia from their childhood, so it's just exciting all around. Yeah, I, I suppose it seems like the kind of thing where people are bonding across generations because the young people are, uh, re oh, are discovering a game as the older people are rediscovering this game. Are you finding that there's a lot of kind of interaction with, in, in that way? Yeah, definitely. So often you'll see people walk past and, you know, the older people go, oh, I remember that game from my childhood and the little kids are going, yeah, let's go play it. You know, it's this fun, colourful game and, you know, jump on an arcade machine. And so I think it, it is something that does cross those generational gaps. And as you said, it, you know, plays on both sides of, you know, the young and the old. So it does appeal to everyone. Is, like, so you've... I believe, done some research paper on video gaming culture. What, mm -hmm. what have you found about retro gaming, if you've looked into it, like compared to sort of more, let's say, serious gaming? Serious gaming, sure. So I've, I've sort of done a little bit more on, um, I suppose, the way video games have become more ingrained into our mainstream culture. So, you know... 10, 15 years ago, say, video gaming was all about um, 
you know, the old or the um, middle-aged kids, you know, guys mainly playing in their basements and being very antisocial. But we know today that that's not necessarily the case. Most people are they're out, they're playing at friends' houses, they're playing online against other people, they're playing in um, in bars and hanging out together. There's that real social aspect of it. And I think if we look back to retro gaming, that's really what retro gaming was all about is this real social element to it. You know, nobody really had an arcade or, you know, these old consoles in their houses. You had to go somewhere to play. And by doing that, it had this real social element to it. So you get a group of mates together, grab your 20-cent coins and head down to the arcade bar and you play there. And so we're seeing a lot of that coming back in um, these days when people are going out and there's this real social element to the whole video games culture, which is we're seeing across the board. You're an esports host, but you also cover motorsport. Am I right? That is correct. Yes. <laughs> is there is there any parallels? Do you find any similarities between esports and motorsports? Yeah, definitely. So the biggest thing is when you're looking at motorsport video gaming, um, the the skills that are needed for motorsport video games are the same types of skills that are needed in real motorsport racing, um, because when you have a a motorsport game, you're set up with an entire, you've got a wheel and you've got pedals. So the input you're giving are the same as what would happen in the physical world. Um, so when we're looking at that, there's definitely those similarities and parallels there. If we're looking a little bit broader, there's a lot of similarities between the way motorsport live events happen and the way live esport events happen. Um, they're these longer events that happen over a couple of days. There's often a grand final and a final. There's teams. So you might have, you know, with motorsport, you have two drivers for each team, usually racing. For esports, you might have four or five people competing. But behind those four or five people in eSport or behind those two people in motorsport is this entire team organisation, team structure around them. There's coaches, there's managers, there's events people, there's branding people, there's marketing people. So even though the in the motorsport it's just the two drivers or eSport, it's the four or five players that are being put in the spotlight, there's everything behind them that's sort of, um, you know, encouraging them and helping them on their way to victory. And it is very much about that whole team aspect. So there's a lot of parallels between the eSport and motorsport there. Where is there more money right now? <laughs> Where's more money? Well, I think you're going to have to say motorsport because it's definitely been around a lot longer. Uh, but if we're looking at the eSports industry um, in particular, so key thing to note is uh, all eSports are all not not all video games are necessarily esports. So if we're looking at esports, which is the professional competitive area of video gaming, that industry is growing 40% year on year. So we're seeing this massive growth. So if you're in any kind of industry, a growth of about 3 or 5% is pretty good. So a growth of 40% year on year globally is pretty big. So That's mind-blowing. Oh, it's huge. And so because of that huge growth, we're seeing way more mainstream brands get involved in esports and we're seeing a, a lot more come into the mainstream marketing and entertainment industry. And that's why you're seeing, you know, companies and um, sporting organisations like the Adelaide Crows and the Essendon Bombers, that's why they're getting involved because they can see this big, you know, commercial opportunity there. So while motorsport is definitely 
bigger at the moment. I, see, I think esports is, is definitely growing and may catch up someday. <laughs> yes, uh, it, it's interesting because um, la- last week we were discussing, uh, we had a, a big esports, uh, I suppose, uh, event here in Melbourne earlier in the month. Did you get along to that at all? I did Melbourne Esports Open. Yeah, um, we, yes, so I was we, there. <laughs> we did we did we did chat a little bit about that, but and again talking about it growing in Australia compared to countries like South Korea, where it is arguably the mm-hmm. biggest sport in the world. Can you see it getting that big? Yeah, I mean the thing is with Australia, we're typically behind the rest of the world in the technology sector, only because. We've often got things six to nine months later. So often while the rest of the world has had plenty of time to play their games and get better, we're often a little bit left behind. Um, so those gaps are closing. So Australia is definitely growing in this esports industry. Uh, the second thing is that our population is a lot smaller and therefore when we play online, we're playing against much less numbers of people than say somewhere like China or South Korea is and so because you're playing against less people you have less of a talent pool to be able to choose from so a lot of our esports teams go overseas to places like Korea and train over there and get better and play on their servers so it definitely esports is not as big here in Australia as it is somewhere like China or South Korea but we are seeing it grow a lot and it's really exciting to see events like the Melbourne Esports Open happen here in Australia. All right back to retro games. (laughs) Yeah back to retro gaming. (laughs) What have you got? Have you got Bubble Bubble? Uh, we've got some really cool retro games. Uh, we've got some old um, arcade racing games, which is really cool. One game that I'm really excited about is we've got Pong. Oh, but it's not, okay. But, but it's not the old style Pong. It's this brand new Pong that's yet to be released, and it's all like this physical version of Pong. So when you you actually physically move the bar along the table, you've got like a table and you sit opposite someone and as what? the ball hits yeah, as the ball hits the bar or the sides, or everything lights up. So it's like this retro digital game that's been put in a physical game device. <laughs> so that's one of my favourite things because it's about bringing, again, what I said before in the interview, is that it's bringing that real retro aspect, but bringing it into the new digital age, but with this cool technology around us, that's definitely my favourite. It's, 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 it's like augmented reality meets uh, Wii Tennis meets Pong. Kind of. So, yeah, you sit down. It's kind of like playing um, air hockey. You sit opposite someone. You've got this little table in front of you. and You, know, you look down and there's a glass box and you see your little um, bar that you move around. The ball kind of bounces off all over the place. <laughs> it's really fun. Is there – so uh, it started, yes? It has definitely started, yes. What What is proving popular? Do you know? Um, so one of the games that we've um, been hosting on the main screen, which is, it's not actually a retro game, it's developed by some gamers here in Melbourne, but it's got that very retro gaming feel to it. So the graphics are very, very um, 80s, 90s style with lots of colours. It's very um, retro-like. It's kind of like a gaming um, you know, 80s dance bar kind of feel to it, <laughs> if I can say that. Uh, but it's a, it's a platform fighter, so similar to Super Smash Brothers, and um, it's a free-to-play game. Anyone can download it and play it, and so we're showcasing that on the big screen, and that's proven to be very popular uh, because it's 
fairly easy to play and most people can kind of come along and um, have a go there. And it's also really awesome to support some of the Melbourne developers here. So they're, they're indie developers, you know, as we know, retro gaming counter you know, it was spawned out of that, you know, backyard gaming in the garage type thing that kind of spawned out of there. So it's really cool to, again, bring those mix of the old and the new and put it all together and showcase some of the cool stuff that Melbourne developers are doing. Because what's the line for retro? Where, where, where are we well, at now? What, what, what well, as, in, as in the, the year cut yeah, how, well, how old does it need well, to be? Yeah, well, I mean, some people would say Age of Empires is retro, right? Even oh. though it's a game out of, like, 1995. So I should probably a little bit later than that. But, you know, it's kind of, I suppose it's like saying what... <laughs> it's like saying what's old now. If mm. you ask, you know, well, the younger years, people, they, the, they think that... 20 years, yeah, 20 I think, years is, the, is the official line, isn't it? Because, like, 90s are big uh, right now and they're retro. But... I wonder whether That's it's... That's what I'm saying, right? It's kind of relative. So if you mm. ask a young person what's old, they'll say anything from the 2000s is old, and we know that's definitely not the case. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd like to think that. But I wonder... So, yeah, oh. it's kind of like that, that late 80s kind of era. I think I think it's more of a style, right, mm. as opposed to a specific age cutoff. So when you're thinking about retro games, it's thinking about that classic 80s, bit style it's 2d it's flat there's very is you know one or two very easy goals that you've got to um try and do so with obviously you know donkey kong you climb up the ladders you get to the top you win mario brothers you move along you know one plane of direction you avoid all the mushrooms you get the flag you win like it's it's kind of like that really simple like gaming whereas if we look at Newer games now, there's so many different aspects of the game that you can be involved in. It's just a different style of gaming. So I would say more of a style as opposed to a year. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so like more, more like an aesthetic. Um, yeah, do, right. do, have, have, Having said that, do you think as time goes on, will the games that we don't think of as retro now become retro? Because like, I, I, I think about something like, I don't know, Super Mario 64 where, like, that was probably, I mean, personally, that was probably, like, the first kind of 3D first-person game that I played. I'd yeah. would, I wouldn't consider that to be retro just yet. But oh, if we, are we sticking are... with the aesthetic thing or do you reckon it will be an age thing? I think so. I think it'll become a, you know, what's, what's around and what's not. So if we think back to the first iPod, that is almost considered retro now because it's just it's old and nobody uses it anyway. So <laughs> um, I think again it'll be a style, but I don't necessarily think the games that we have will be considered retro. They might have their own new things. So say if we move more into the space of augmented and virtual reality, and we're using more sort of motion censored inputs as opposed to you know hands and on a controller that will be considered something new and the games that we currently play will be called something different. But they'll be old but not necessarily in that retro format. I think that's probably what the way it'll go. The King of Kong was a doco about uh, competitive Kong playing. Do you, <laughs> <laughs> which you may or may not be familiar with. Do you think, do you think there's a, a retro standard that's going to come out as, like, if you can can be be the the best at this, you are the retro master? Oh, you know, everything's up for grabs these days. I, I watched a game called, um, a movie, sorry, called um, uh, The Player or uh, Pixels. 
Pixel, I think it was, and like Adam Sandler's in it, and he's like the you know world champion of Donkey Kong, but like nobody knows who he was. <laughs> So it could end up being something like that where you become the world champion and no one really knows who you are. Wow. But you still can't take that away from you, can you? Exactly. So I think it would be more of a um, a personal kind of goal that you put to your name. I don't think we'll have... um, Look, it could make a comeback. It depends, though. So when we're looking, again, this is across all esports and we're looking at esports that are really successful the games that are successful are the ones that are able to be watched by an audience so it's something that the audience can watch and understand and have entertainment value from so if we can find some retro games like that and they can be presented in a way and a tournament can be um, produced in a way that's exciting and competitive then sure we could have some retro gaming esports. I wouldn't mind seeing that, to be honest. <laughs> I'd watch that. Totally. Well, I look forward yeah. to dragging my son, son, my son along and introducing him to the wonders <laughs> of Pong. Um, what, when, when did you say this was on until? So this is on until the 23rd of February and it's on every day from 11am to 7pm and on Friday nights from 5pm to 7pm there's um, different tournaments, there's a lolly bar, there's you know, some retro gaming obviously that's happening around but there's also a bit of a DJ and a bit more of a kind of function and where people kind of come along on a Friday night for some drinks and things like that. So it's got a bit more, a bit more vibrancy and a bit more atmosphere on the Friday evenings which is really exciting. You know, come along, see some tournaments, and see some real pros on the on the big screen. Sounds great. Uh, we'll definitely be heading down. Michelle Mannering, thank you very much for joining us tonight, and we will uh, see you down at QV. Oh, thank you for having me. It is five minutes to eight on Bite Into It. You're with Simon and Dan, and. As it is five minutes to eight, it is... I can't do the maths. But if you stay up until 3am tonight, then you can watch <laughs> the Apple event. This year's Apple event, yes. Uh, it's time for us to find out about the new and uh, exciting technology that Apple are releasing this year. Obviously, everyone is wondering what the new iPhone is going to be like. Uh, there's... I'm trying to have a look There is rumours that rumors. there will be a iPhone XS because why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? I don't know. Are we still getting excited about Apple? To, like, I mean, the last couple of years it's kind of been, oh, okay, the phone looks <laughs> the ask. same. It's got it's got more stuff in it. I don't know. At least they're making big ones now. But, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm now at the point where my last cuz i i do use apple phones and i i know i probably shouldn't but they've all like the last couple of phones just look the same and i know i have a friend who bought the new one that doesn't have the buttons on it just because it looked different and that's kind of like Really, have we got to that point where we're just so bored with the new iPhone that it needs to look a bit different in order for us to buy it? I couldn't afford an iPhone last time I needed a phone, so I yeah. sold my phone, my soul to Google because it was cheaper. Fair um, enough. Whilst we're on the topic oh, of major tech companies, yes, I believe now, you've got something to gloat about. I do, I do have someone. I don't want to gloat. No, no, there's no, nothing better than a bad winner. But 
Last week, I had a bit of a rant about uh, one E. Musk and how we kind of need to stop worshipping this guy. Uh, Three days later, he proved to me why we need to stop worshipping this guy. He went on um, a podcast with uh, US comedian Joe Rogan, got, I think for want of a better word, really stoned and just talked rubbish for hours. Some people say that he only took a bum puff, but I don't know if those two are mutually exclusive or not. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not willing to give the guy the time of day anymore. Um, there, there were some articles. You know, he he got into like it was one of those things. You know, I mean, not not that I've ever smoked any marijuana, but I imagine that people have conversations that just kind of you know go around in circles and talk about existence and just like it sounded like undergrad crap. I don't know. I'm just sick of the guy. Sure. How many times can we give him a free pass for Tesla and batteries? Well, it seems like he's losing some sheen. Anyway, the stock price did take a dive, but probably less because of his uh, interview and more because of some high-profile staff leaving Mm. the company. And I wonder why they left. (laughs) Maybe he's insufferable and maybe he's about to tweet at me and call me something You might very think that. We'll think that, Dan. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Francis Underwood. <laughs> it is a minute and a half to eight o'clock. We've been by into it. Thank you very much for listening. We uh, will be back next week. But in the meantime, we have Mr Anthony Carew coming up next with the International Pop Bucket Underground. So please stick around for that. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 